0: Good morning. Christ is risen. I'm going to continue the theme of grace, not grace and peace. I am going to continue grace and peace (laughs) and salt and light that we've been talking about for the last few weeks. And I'm also going to kind of test the bonds of friendship. I've been here four or five times, I think, in the last few months, last year or so. And we've made some connections. Some of you are becoming friends, at least on the way to that, and I'm learning your names and your faces and stories and vice versa, and so I'm going to just kind of test that and just see how, how, how closely connected are we, in fact, and uh, that, uh, we'll, we'll know a lot more about each other when this is done. You know, you get to that point in a relationship at some point in your life where you're like, I need to know what kind of friend this really is, right? So I'm, I'm going to kind of open my heart up and let you see me a little bit, and you can all judge me. How about that? Like, that's, that's the way it'll work, but before I do that, I want to take a moment to celebrate something God has been doing in us. One of the the mysteries about being a Christian is that we're not just united by what we believe and what we do, but through the Spirit, we truly belong to one another. Scripture says that we rejoice with those who rejoice and suffer with those who suffer. We almost always hear that as a command. If you see someone rejoicing, rejoice with them. If you see someone suffering, suffer with them. But it's actually a, a description. It's indicative of us. We belong to one another, so when you're suffering, I am suffering. Whether I acknowledge it or not, I suffer because I'm a member of you in Christ through the Spirit. And when God's blessing is at work in your life, I'm blessed. Whether I acknowledge it or not, your blessing is my blessing. My blessing is your blessing. And what we're commanded to do is come aware of that. This month, whether you realize it or not, this body was at work collaborating with God in South America. It was a team of people, about 20 people, led by a member here at Sanctuary to Bogota and then from there into some of the jungle villages along the River Amazon where they were doing mobile wellness clinics, eye checks, giving away glasses, praying with people, baptizing some people in the Amazon. So while you and I were working and eating and sleeping and having our conversations and going about our daily life, we were also through the Spirit participating with what God was doing there among those people. And only from We'll be able to see the ways in which we were intertwined and all that. I think it's important this morning that we just stop for a moment and celebrate that we get to participate with one another and with God in doing that. Amen? That's a good thing. That's a good thing. So Matthew 28, this passage that we're going to look at together, in fact, let's just just start there. Matthew 28. What do we call that passage? What's, What's our name for it? The Great Commission. So I told you I'm going to test the bonds of friendship this morning by suggesting to you, what if we're wrong about the Great Commission? Now, see, one of the questions that haunts me as a pastor, as a professor, as a Christian, as a human being, is what if I'm wrong about something that I'm so comfortable with I never even think about it? There's There's a wonderful little parable about two young fish swimming along as young fish do, I suppose. What else are you gonna do if you're a young fish, right? They're swimming along, and an old fish, a gnarled fish, receding hairline, right? Comes toward them in, in, in the water, right? I told you, I am going to test the bonds of friendship. See, I'm challenging you that these fish are in the water swimming toward each other. And as the old fish swims by the two young fish, he says to them, in an old kind of croaky voice, How's the water? And the two young fish smirk as young fish do, right? They're undergraduates. They, they smirk and look at one another in, in this snarky voice. One says to the other, what's water? Right? Now, the point of that parable is that there are some things that are so close to us, so basic to the way we live in the world, that we don't even know we're in them. We don't even know that we are possible only because of them. And there are beliefs that we have, habits of thought and practice that are like water to a fish for us. They're so close to us, they're so basic that we never stop to think, what if there's something wrong there? And I think a particular way of thinking about the Great Commission has become like that water to those fish for us. We have a particular way of hearing the Great Commission that we just assume is what the Great Commission, in fact, is. And we never stop to think, What if there is a problem there? It's something like, to change the metaphor, imagine you have a a puzzle, you know, a 5,000-piece puzzle. But for some reason, you've forgotten that it's a 5,000-piece puzzle. And you've found 25 or 30 pieces. And some way, you've made those pieces fit together and it looks like a hole. And you think, look, I, I completed the puzzle. I can go back and watch some more TV. And someone walks in and says, What's this? And you're like, that's my puzzle. Well, what about these other, you know, 49,075 pieces that you didn't include? I think something like that has happened to the way we read the Great Commission. We've puzzled it together, and it kind of looks like a whole, but we've forgotten about the vast majority of the pieces that need to be brought into play. So let's look at this passage. We all know it, but let's look at it again. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Now, how could we be wrong about that? Again, this seems unquestionably true. Our way of reading, it seems unquestionably true. But I read a book that brought to my attention something that shook me at my foundations. And in this book, Daryl Guder was his name. He says this: the way we read the Great Commission was not the way the church read it for 1,700 years. Now he goes on to make an entirely different argument than the one I'm going to make this morning. But I, I remember where I was when I read that. I just sat back and thought, "What? How is that possible?" Because when I read the Great Commission, it seems so transparent, so obvious. How could you have 1,700 years of Christian life in which people are reflecting on Scripture? embodying the scripture, and how could they not hear what I hear when I read that text? So then, of course, my next question is, how did they hear it? What were they hearing? And this is what I found out when I started to look at the history of the reading of Matthew 28, is that in the late 1700s, early 1800s, a new way of reading Matthew 28 emerged and a new form of Christianity that identified evangelism with winning people to Jesus And gave that priority of place In the Christian life So that the church's reason for being Was to win people to Jesus Now I had assumed That was what Christians had always believed Because that's what I had always heard I've been to many different churches In many different contexts Small and large Pentecostal, charismatic Protestant More mainline stream And I've always heard that same basic message That we exist to win people to Jesus And so I thought why? What were Christians thinking for 1,700 years? How did it take so long for this to dawn on us? And so then I started to do a bit of research on what they thought. And this is, this is what I found. That new reading that emerged in the late 17, early 1800s started at the top of the Great Commission. So that we're used to hearing the Great Commission from the top down, so to speak. And as if the most important word in the passage is the first word, Go. As if the whole of the Christian life, or at least the majority of the Christian life, is about going. About making Christ known to as many people as possible. That our goal is to win as many people as possible by getting them to say the sinner's prayer, convert to Jesus, walk the aisle, raise the hand, whatever it takes to get them to become Christian. That's our primary goal. And if we somehow make it to the end of the commission, teach them to obey everything that I have taught you to do, Then well and good. But the most important thing is that we go and we make disciples. But what has happened in the 200 years or so since this new form of Christianity has emerged is that we've really ended up with two kinds of churches. This is oversimplified, but you'll get the point. We get churches that are concerned about going, and they want to get as many people as possible. And so they end up with a kind of Christianity that's 10 miles wide and an inch deep. Because they're trying to appeal to everybody because they want to lower all of the, the bars that you might have to jump over to become a Christian. So we structure our church so it will make sense for people. So they'll want to follow Jesus. Right? We preach sermons so people want to follow Jesus. We sing songs that people want to hear. So they'll want to follow Jesus because the goal is to get a lot of people to follow Jesus. And then you have these other churches that tend to be pretty small that they are concerned with trying to get people to be mature. Trying to bring people into mature discipleship. But what if we have to take the whole commission seriously? Not just the going and winning, but the making disciples. And not just making disciples, but teaching them to obey everything. And what I learned is that Christians for the longest time read the commission not from the top down, but from the bottom up. And they heard the commission as a call to belong to a community where they would be taught to obey everything. They would be taught to obey, and out of that life of obedience in community, they would slowly start to identify people within that community who had been called to go. That's a reading I think we need to recover. We need to read the commission from the bottom up. The commission first needs to be heard by us, not as people who are called to go, but as people who are called to come and stay until we've learned to obey And living that life in community, recognizing that there will come a time in which the Holy Spirit will single out people and say, These people are mine. I'm taking them. I'm sending them. And from our community where we've learned to obey and are learning to obey, they go in the name of Jesus. Shaped to preach the gospel. If we don't work that way, what we end up with is assuming we know the gospel when we don't. This is one of the reasons Protestantism splits so often. Because people go with something that's burning in their heart, but they haven't learned to live obedience and community, and so they don't yet really know what the gospel is. So what I want to try to do this morning is kind of mess up the puzzle and say, listen, that's nice. We have 49,000 other pieces to work in. So let's just undo what we've done here, and let's start the puzzle with this bigger picture in mind. So not only read the commission from the bottom up, but how does that commission, even when it's read from the bottom up, fit in what I'm going to call the greater commission? If you've made it this far, you're going to be all right. Genesis chapter 1. Now, notice I said Genesis chapter 1 and not Genesis chapter 3. Because in the way we put the puzzle together, Genesis chapter 3 is where you start. Man sins. Woman sins. It's really your fault, women. (laughs) Women sin. And then Adam follows suit, right? And so man is sinner. God must break in to save us Now we and he has done that in Jesus Christ now we go and tell people about that that's the way we put the puzzle together but there's something truer about you than that you are a sinner there's something deeper than your sinfulness and what's deeper than your sinfulness is the call of God on you the calling of God scripture says is without repentance and the call of God isn't in Genesis 3 it's in Genesis 1 And again, we know the passage, but let's come to it and let's hear it now, not as what God said of Adam and Eve in the beginning, but what he says over all human beings, you and me included. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that comes upon the earth. God created you and me and all human beings with a calling, And that calling is to cooperate with him in reigning and having dominion over creation. Human beings were created to be co-regents with God. That's why we exist. Sin has ruptured that, it's fractured that, it's disoriented that, but it hasn't changed the calling of God on our lives. His callings are without repentance. And he means for us to be at work with him in ruling and reigning over creation. Notice it says we were made in his image. Three times the passage says, image of God, image of God, image of God. And as Christians, we know who that is. No one has seen God at any time, John says. But Jesus Christ, the one who is in the embrace of the Father, he has made him known. Hebrews chapter one, God has spoken in various ways in the past. But Jesus, who is the express image of the Father, has now spoken God's final word to us. Jesus is the image of God, which means we were created to collaborate with God, to cooperate with God in ruling and reigning over this creation in our partnership with Jesus, who is the image of God. As we become like him, as we share in his image, as we become his body, we are participating in his ruling and reigning. We have to rule like he rules. We have to reign like he reigns. We have to do that in participation with him. That is the Great Commission, evangelism is an aspect of that it's one corner of the puzzle we do have to bring people to know jesus but that fits into this larger commission of reigning and ruling with him over all of creation from angels to ant eaters right this is what scripture says ephesians 3 that through the church god is going to make known his manifold wisdom to the principalities and the powers Paul says later in the book that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. In Corinthians, he says, Do you not know you're going to judge angels? Because we have been called to collaborate with God in ordering creation. And we also have to care for the things of this earth. Creation care is not a liberal project, it's a Christian vocation. We are, we don't, I'm not going to be hijacked by liberal political agendas or conservative ones. But the kingdom has its own agenda, and that includes our care for this earth God has created. It does. Testing the bond of friendship right there, just (laughs) stretching that a little bit. But we are called to care. That's what we were made for. This is why it's absurd, and this is back to the problem of the puzzle, when you want to talk about winning souls, but you don't care for the earth. The greater commission is to rule and reign with him over all things. Let us make man in our image that he might subdue and have dominion. That is the most basic calling we have. Romans chapter 8 shows us how this plays out. Because it's not just to angels and anteaters, it's also to one another. That to be human is to be collaborating with God in bringing His order, His kingdom, to all of creation, visible and invisible. Things seen and things unseen. Things in heaven and things on earth. Think about what we pray. We prayed it this morning. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is the human prayer. We exist to make sure that his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Whether we're talking about angels or anteaters or we're talking about our neighbors. Our aunts and uncles and moms and dads and brothers and sisters and coworkers. That's why we exist. Look at what Romans 8 does. And will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now in this paragraph, Paul frames his thought with references to glory. He opens with saying, we are about to encounter glory. And then he says, creation is groaning, yearning, longing, crying out for glory. But the glory that we are about to see is a glory that comes to us. Paul says, the sufferings of this life are not worthy to compare to the glory about to be revealed to us. But creation is not groaning for that glory. Creation is not groaning for Christ to return. Creation is not, gro- is not groaning for God to end time and bring the kingdom. Creation is groaning for us to come into our glory. Because when God gave us the vocation to care for the earth, he meant it. So that he's not going to save creation without saving us. He's not going to save creation without partnering with us in saving creation. He's not going to save us without partnering with us in saving one another. That's what he's doing. And that's why creation is groaning, waiting for the glory to be revealed to us so it can get through us to the creation. Because this is what it means to be human. To be human is to be created, to be designed, to be the kind of creature who can have glory come to it and then through it. That's what we are. We are like the virgin. It comes to us and through us. We're like Abraham. I have blessed you to be a blessing. And to be human is to be the kind of creature who is able to hear what's happening in heaven and translate it into earth. And to be a Christian is to be a human who knows that. The only difference between you and a non-believer is that you know what your calling is and you're living it. They have the same call. They're just not yet aware that that's their call. And they don't yet have the skills to bring heaven to bear on earth but we are the people who are learning through the grace of the spirit to do that so that everything we do everywhere we go every conversation we have everyone we encounter we have glory coming to us and through us and we are bringing his kingdom to bear his will is being done on earth as it is in heaven that's what it means to be priests we have to recover the sense that we are priests maybe maybe what we should do is have like vestment sunday and we'll all come with our clerical collars and our robes, as a way of reminding ourselves we are a kingdom of priests. We are a kingdom of priests. And our, our, our responsibility is to dwell in the presence of God and then come out from that presence of God and bring that presence with us and through us, bring that presence to all of creation, to our neighbors, to our enemies, to our children, to our coworkers, to the earth. And in doing that, be a witness even invisib- to the invisible realm. That is the great commission That is the greater commission In which evangelism fits So so let's think a little bit about priesthood There's a kind of logic to priesthood And I want to show you this Let's go to Hebrews 10 Hebrews 10 verse 5 And what we're going to see here Is the, the writer of Hebrews is going to To let us in on A moment of prayer between the son and the father The the incarnate son is praying to the father And the writer of Hebrews is going to give us a glimpse of that And then he's going to step back from it and reflect on what that means for us So let's let's look at this passage Consequently when Christ came into the world he said Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired But a body you have prepared for me Attend to that language A body you have prepared for me In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure Then I said This is the son praying Then I said, see, God, I have come to do your will, O God. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. In other words, it's my assignment. It's what you said I was for, what I was to do. And then the writer of Hebrews steps back and reflects on that prayer. When he said, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. But he added, I have come to do your will. So he says, Christ recognizes that that the Father institutes these blood sacrifices, these animal sacrifices, not because it's going to accomplish his will, but because it's going to train us to recognize the one who will accomplish his will. But what God has always wanted is a human being who will offer his body as a living sacrifice. God has always wanted us to be sacrifices, not just to make sacrifices. That's always been his goal. And that's why Christ says, you've prepared a body for me that I might do your will. And then the author of Hebrews lets us see what is it that is God's will. Now, in the way we put the puzzle together, we think God's will is to provide a way of escape for us so that we don't have to be damned. But it's much larger, much more beautiful than that. It's as if we're hearing one violin, and it's beautiful music, but we're we're supposed to hear an orchestra. And we can't hear the beauty, we can't hear the symphony because we only hear these notes from this one instrument. Jesus didn't come and die to provide a way out of hell for us. He came that we might fulfill what we were created to do. He came to make possible this greater commission. Notice what he says. It is by God's will that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So what was God's will? To bring his holiness into creation so that his glory covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. God always meant for this creation to be alive with his own life, to be holy with his own holiness, to be glorious with his own glory, to be powerful with his own powerful, his own power. He always meant for the creation to be imbued with his life. And we were the creatures he made to do that. We are the vessels through which all of that glory, all of that power, all of that beauty, all of that love, all of that holiness is going to be shared with creation. That's good news. I don't know how to get past this point in the sermon. That's good news. That is a great commission. I want to belong to that commission. I want to share that. I want to be caught up in that story. Because I can feel it changing me. I can feel the beauty of it transfiguring me. Okay, I'll go on. Sorry, I, I can getting get any bit out of shape. Colossians 1. I'm a Pentecostal, so you get in those kind of moments, right? And you expect people to start running the aisles, and then you don't know what to do when they don't. But like you preach up to that point, and it's supposed to end there, right? But I'll keep going if you, if you want me to. Colossians 1. I just see, see, I hear your silence as, tell us more. Right? I know that's not what you're meaning it to say, but that's my interpretation. That's my redemptive reading of your silence. Colossians 1.24. I am now rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake. Now, this is a puzzle you're going to see all through the New Testament. People are rejoicing in their sufferings. I mean, what kind of sick people rejoice in their sufferings? The apostles did. How is that possible? We, we prayed this morning about the army of martyrs. I mean, Christianity is a life of martyrdom, but why, really? How can Paul rejoice in his sufferings? Notice what he says. I'm rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, we, we just we, this doesn't compute. Complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? We just read in Hebrews that Christ offered up his body once for all. And here Paul is talking about Christ's incomplete afflictions. And here's the problem we've oversimplified what Christ has done. There is a way in which Christ's work is finished. On the cross, one of the last words he says is, It is finished. And there is a dimension of his work that is accomplished, it's over. He has sat down at the right hand of the Father on high, he is exalted as Lord. But 1 Corinthians 15 puts it this way. He has been made Lord and he must reign until he has brought all of his enemies under his feet. So at one level, he is Lord already. He's as Lord as he'll ever be. He's already kinging in all of his kingness. But there's another way in which that kingship has not been brought fully to bear. So as Messiah, he's accomplished it. It is finished. he has set down. God has accepted his sacrifice once for all. But as head of the body, his work is ongoing. That's why he is in heaven interceding for us. Because we haven't yet lived into that fullness. And to be his body means we have to now grow up into everything that he is. Ephesians says that we are coming together under the ministry of the apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. That the body might grow up into the fullness of the full measure of the stature of Christ. Because now we together have to live into the fullness that christ has already lived because he is our substitute inclusively not exclusively the way we preach we talk sometimes as if christ makes our obedience unnecessary his death makes our death unnecessary but it's actually the other way around christ's life makes our life possible his death makes our death possible His obedience makes our obedience possible because Christ goes ahead of us and creates room for us so that we can come along in imitation and in participation and become like him. This is why Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 5, we are convinced that one died, and therefore we would say, so no one has to die. But Paul says, one died, therefore all have died, so that they may no longer live for themselves, but live for the one who gave himself for them. Jesus lives the kind of life that makes it possible for us to live that kind of life He comes as the pioneering priest who lives a life of perfect transparency to God perfect givenness to neighbor and now that life is possible for us And that's what we were made for That's what we were created for to be glorified and glorifying to be loved and loving to be powered and empowering to constantly be receiving the glory of God and then letting that refract through us to everyone around us. Nothing less than that. So there's a kind of logic here to priestly work. We saw it in both of these passages. You're given a body. Sometimes we talk as if Christianity is all about something that happens in your heart. Nonsense. Being a Christian is about what you do with your body. It's about what you do with your body. And there's something about presence Something about, it's one of the reasons we gather in a space like this. Because I don't, it's not enough for you in your heart to have worshipful feelings for God. I need to see all that at play right around me. When we're singing together, I need to hear your voice. I need to see your hands thrown up. I need to see the tears coming down your face. Because there's something about a body that brings his holiness to bear. We're humans, and God gave us this So we can offer it up fully to him and to our neighbors. And through that embodiment, he's going to bring his holiness to bear. He's going to bring glory and power and love and beauty to bear. So that we part of our commission is just to know where to be. Know where to be and know how to be there when you're there. To know how to sit with someone like Job's friends were before they opened their mouths. Right? Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, one of the greatest ministries is the ministry of holding your tongue. <laughs> it's just knowing how to sit down, maybe listen, but just be there. Because your body is an instrument of the triune God. Just like Jesus' body was, they could touch his clothes and be healed because there was something about his body that had been so saturated with the power of the Spirit. That's what we are supposed to be, to be present in that way. And, and when it's time to speak, to speak, to know what to say. Just this week, this has happened for me. I was in the midst of a funk, and it's a difficult time, lots of things going on inside of me that I just was deeply unsettled. And someone sent me a text message with a scripture verse. That's about as cliched as you can get. But it wasn't just a text message with a scripture verse. It was God's word right at the right time for me and it blew up all of that unsettledness and all of that darkness and brought me back into orientation to the truth because sometimes the only thing that's going to save is you speaking the right word at the right time and the right tone to that person and it's not just your word anymore, it's God's word. And out of death comes life. When we end this service in just a few moments, we're gonna come to this table where there is a body prepared. It's bread and wine. No, no, no. It's a body prepared to remind us that we are meant to be priests. It doesn't seem like much, but that's the point. Our lives, in the mundane goings on of our everyday life, we don't seem like much. But just as in this bread and wine, there is going to be the work of God bringing Christ's body and blood into us and upon us and consuming us with it, in your body, in your words, in your silence, in your being with people, it may not look like much, but you cannot imagine the ways in which God's Spirit is using you, as He used Abraham, as He used Mary, to bring glory to bear on creation. Yes. And so I'll end with this image Andre Tarkovsky's movie, The Sacrifice, opens with this older man planting a tree and speaking to his young son. He's had a son late in life, and he's talking to his son about planting this tree, which is a dead tree, a dead tree, and he's planting it in rocks. And he tells his son this story of a monk who had struggled with sin, a besetting sin, as as King James puts it, and he couldn't overcome the sin, and he struggled for the longest time, and finally he came to his abbot, and he said, Father, I cannot overcome my sin. I've prayed, I've fasted, I've studied scripture, I've watched Christian television. No, he didn't say that. (laughs) I've done everything I can. I can't overcome this sin. And the father says, go to the forest and find a dead tree. And carry that dead tree to the top of this mountain. And plant that dead tree in rock. And then every day, gather water at the foot of that mountain and climb the mountain and pour water on that dead tree. So, the monk begins to do that. And for day after day and week after week and month after month and year after year, that's what he does. His life becomes about carrying water up the mountain to a dead tree. And one day, he comes up that mountain, saying his prayers, carrying his water, and that tree is alive. What's the point of that story? It's about our vocation. We were created to be gardeners. We were created in a garden to care, but sin came, and now we are gardeners of dead things. We are gardeners who live in the midst of death, but what Jesus does is he says, I want you to go on gardening. Plant these trees in dead rock. Pour water on these dead trees in the rock, and what's going to happen is I'm going to bring life. Naaman, go and dip in the river seven times. Men, take this water to the master of the feast, and on your way, that water you're carrying is going to become wine. That's the greatest wine this feast has known. While you're dipping in the river, Naaman, I'm going to transform you so that your skin becomes like that of a baby. You need to recognize that you live in the midst of death. All God is asking you to do is plant those dead trees in rock, and then every day pour water on them. I mean this in the most concrete sense possible. There are people in your family, people you work with, who you know they're dead. You can see the decay. You can see the rot. What God is telling you to do is to pour water on that dead tree and to keep pouring water on that dead tree. Keep speaking life. Keep praying over them. Keep believing for them. Keep letting your faith stand for them because one day, a month from now, a year from now, A decade from now, you're going to encounter that person, and without believing it, you're going to see there's life in this person. You know how I know that's true? Because that's why I'm here. That's why you're here. You didn't will your way to life. You didn't choose to be alive. You were a dead tree. And somebody poured water on you. Over and over and over again. They prayed for hours for you. They prayed for years for you. They confessed scripture over you. They looked you in the eye and loved you, respected you, treated you with dignity, and one day you woke up and you had life in you, and you thought it was because you decided to follow Jesus. No, you decided to follow Jesus because somebody kept coming up the mountain and pouring water on you, and then you came alive. You can do that for others. That's what you were meant to do. That is the greater commission. Everybody we encounter, let's pour water on them. Let's speak life to them. Let's let God's glory and God's beauty and God's love be refracted through us so that they can experience that. And we may not see the change as it's happening. Those men who are carrying the water to the man who's overseeing the feast, they don't see it change. But somewhere between filling the the pots and carrying it to the master of the feast, something happened. He didn't see the tree come to life. One morning it is Believe that Be confident that the Holy Spirit's working you Is that kind of work You may not sense it He's doing it Just as at this table He's working in ways we can't expect Let me pray with you and then we're going to enter into this time Of sharing in the body and blood God we want to be participants with you Cooperators with you In bringing your holiness And love to bear Capture us with the vision of the greater commission. Let us see the ways in which we are meant for so much more than we've ever dared to imagine. In your name we pray. Amen.